Katie, um, pleased to meet you uh, and most welcome. Thank you so much. Really excited to share Coral Vida's mission with you today. Oh, fantastic. Um, tell me, uh, where are you based? So we are based in Freeport, Grand Bahama, which is the closest island in the Bahamas to the United States. <laughs> that, that sounds very sunny and very warm. I'm now just looking out the window at pouring rain here right now. So um, I take it it's warm and sunny where you are? Yes, there's just a handful of clouds in the sky, although it was a little bit cool this morning, 68 Fahrenheit. So those of us who've been here in the tropics for a while felt a little bit of that fall chill today. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to sympathize. <laughs> um, you are Director of Restoration uh, Science for Coral Vita and recently won a million pound, pound or dollar pound? Million pounds, yeah. Million pounds, uh, prize in the uh, shot competition. Fantastic. First of all, congratulations for that. That's an amazing achievement. Can you just tell us a little bit about Coral Vita um, and also what that million pounds will mean to the project? Yes, thank you so much. Um, it's an incredible honor and not just us here at Coral Vita to thank, um, but many restoration practitioners, many reef restoration practitioners before us have paved the way for us to really develop all of our methods that ended up culminating in our receipt of this award. Uh, so Coral Vita is the world's first commercial coral farm geared towards growing corals to use for coral reef restoration. So we are able to, in a very controlled environment, grow corals up to 50 times faster in our land-based farm than they actually would in the wild. We're also able to grow what we call climate change resilient corals or corals that can handle other stressors like disease, or lower acidity water. And our goal is to be able to restore reefs with these almost more hardy corals. Are the, are the corals um, genetically altered at all or, or are you just um, breeding them for their hardiness? Yep, so we do approaches that fall under the umbrella called assisted evolution. So that allows us to, for example, breed corals that might have a higher heat tolerance and almost push along that process that might happen naturally in the wild under these very con controlled conditions here. But we do not impose any sort of genetic modifications on the corals. We're breeding and using selective stock that already exists in nature. Right, okay, so where, where have the um, corals you're working with come from? So all the corals that we work with come from a pretty small radius here from our farm at Coral Vita. Um, there's pretty strict permitting requirements and regulations. So for example, at this moment in time, we cannot say take corals from a more Southern island and use them here. So they're all, all very localized corals per our permitting right now. Right, okay. I did. Somebody did tell me once that, uh, as an example, corals in the Red Sea, for example, are much hardier and resilient to climate change than a lot of other tropical corals, mm -hmm. simply because the water temperature there does change quite a lot throughout a year. Uh, are you taking any information from those sort of corals or are you basically starting from new? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So there is much that we can learn from studies that are on those types of corals. So here, for example, at Coral Vita, we can go and scout for locations that exist in areas where there are, sorry, <laughs> um, that exist in areas that, for example, are very shallow, have a lot of light and may therefore have a higher temperature. And so corals that are thriving under those conditions could be good candidates for us to implement in our selective breeding program or to use as broodstock um, is the term that we use for a parent colony that we can then actually get clones of. So to sum that up, looking for environments that are usually deemed testing for corals or difficult for corals to typically look in, and we look to see if there are indeed populations thriving there. Yeah, so everything you're working with is in the Bahamas at the moment. Uh, so will you be planning then to, uh, in, in the near future, take that abroad into other parts of the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thanks to the EarthSop Prize, we will really be able to scale up our efforts not only here in the Bahamas, potentially by opening another farm on another island in the Bahamas, uh, but our intention is to eventually have coral farms all over the world in all different countries that support tropical reefs because degradation of corals is a global problem and it really needs to be tackled as a global problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an interesting one for for those that have been diving a long time. We we see firsthand the degradation, the the loss of corals, and yet for new divers, it's the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, you see a you see a white seabed, and you think that's normal, and you see a few fish on it, and you think it's wonderful. Um, so in the in the long term to bring that back and get the support of people. Uh, how are you dealing with education and uh, telling people what it should be like and helping them to recover their own reefs? Yes, yeah, so as COVID hopefully wanes down and our farm is back up and running, we will be able to host not only tourists or what we call eco-tourists, but we'll be able to host many different school children. So ranging from kindergarten in the United States all the way up through secondary school. And we plan to have a robust educational program, not only about how Coral Vita approaches this issue of reef restoration, but the broader issues that have contributed to that degradation over time, um, including global climate change, as well as local stressors. So for example, coastal development, um, overfishing, those sort of issues. Um, we are also planning on scaling up our social media presence, so including educational videos, um, brief synopses of the methods that we're implementing, why they're important, and what the average person can do to support um, improving the health of coral reefs. At what, at what point does a, does a coral reef become get to the point where it can no longer exist, where it can no longer support itself and, and other marine life. And if you've got 100% coral reef, for example, mm -hmm. can you say when you get down to a certain percent, it's then doomed? Or is everything 
able to be brought back in some way? Yes, so there are places that we would classify as a coral reef that right now have about 5% coral cover. And that's down from the 60, 70, 80% of coral cover that existed decades ago that were the pinnacle of healthy reefs. Um, so this, the, the use of this term coral reef is, can be pretty broad. Um, it's definitely worth considering changing it. Um, but we can also have an area that has 5% coral cover or less, and we can implement restoration strategies to initiate um, immediate rebuilding and replenishment of live coral that we then hope in the long run will continue to sustain itself. Mm, yeah. It, it, one of the things that always um, is on my mind, it's, it's a bit of an analogy to deforestation and then having a program of replanting trees. Great. You produce wood, but you don't produce a forest. The, the, the wildlife is gone, the ecosystem is gone, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it's the same with uh, coral reefs. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, really. It's, <laughs> it's at what point can you start a new coral reef? So if you've got an area that's been totally uh, decimated, can you then start planting there and get the other, the rest of the ecosystem back into that area? Is that a possibility or are there a lot of factors depending on that? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's extremely important to determine what initially caused the loss of coral in that specific area. Um, if it was due to hurricane damage or maybe a ship grounding, that is a perfect candidate for restoration approaches. If we have clear evidence that there was coral in that location before and there was some sort of physical damage that removed it. However, if the degradation, the loss of corals is due to something such as point source pollution, um, sewage effluent coming from the land, or if there's a lot of sediment from an ongoing coastal development project, um, that would be an area that we'd have to make very careful decisions about whether or not we are going to put in the time and the effort to restore that area. We don't want to, again, spend the time and the effort to restore an area that is going to be continually subjected to these local stressors that could just kill that crop of coral. So there's quite a number of initial surveys that go into our planning for a selection of restoration sites. And without, without putting you on the spot, are, are there uh, coral reefs that are not going to be able to be brought back now globally that are actually gone? Um, I think that there's still quite a bit of scientific knowledge that needs to be gained and data collected in order to really answer that question. Uh, there are definitely areas where, for example, point source pollution has not been addressed. And if the local governments or the broader government don't put in the money and the effort to remediate that, then those reefs will not be able to come back until that particular situation is addressed. Mm. would seems a bit desperate yes <laughs> in, yes in way, yeah no, absolutely i mean we, we've got uh cop going on here at the moment in glasgow uh do you know if reefs and oceans 
uh, taking any part in, in those discussions? Yes, so our founder and uh, chief reef officer, Sam Teicher, is at COP right now to um, spread Coral Vita's message and to meet with others who come from countries that really depend on the presence of coral reefs um, to discuss potentially what next steps should be taken. Um, so I will, we will know more about how that goes once he returns and once this uh, meeting is over. Who's he actually meeting with? Uh, he has not shared that information with us yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I was just wondering whether whether he has to go in cold and try and grab people or whether he's been able to set up meetings or not. Yeah, I, I can definitely ask him and see if he'll get back to me and send you an email. Yeah, we, we'd love to keep an eye on it and, and you know, um, just pass on information as, as it comes through. Yeah. Can you just tell us the importance of coral reefs? Yeah, so coral reefs are incredibly beautiful ecosystems that many people appreciate. And they only cover about half a percent of the ocean floor, but they're important for almost a billion people worldwide. And that can be through, for example, tourism, as many people like to visit reefs, whether they're snorkeling, scuba diving, or kayaking. Um, they can be used for local sustenance fishing or commercial fishing. And in turn, they actually support uh, about 25% of the entire world's marine life at some life stage of all those organisms. So an incredible hub of biodiversity there, as you mentioned, they are referred to often as the rainforest of the sea. And they also provide um, protection for other really important ecosystems like seagrass beds and mangroves that host a lot of charismatic megafauna people really care about. So manatees, sea turtles and the like. And finally, they provide quite a bit of coastal protection during storms. And a number of studies have shown that the actual physical framework of coral reefs can reduce wave energy from storms by up to 97%. So you can imagine um, in the long run, that is quite a bit of money saved from reducing destruction during what we see are more frequent and more intense hurricanes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and to people that don't live with coral reefs, uh, it's, it's one of those things, you know, the weather, the fact they're a great barrier against storms and uh, et cetera. Um, it's just not publicized enough. I mean, they I still find that generally people think of coral reefs as full of pretty fish. And yes. that's it. Yes, it's a shame we're losing the fish, but you know, we have to move on. And uh, <laughs> I find it very, very difficult sometimes to, to put that other argument that, so that people will actually believe it. Tell me, what are, what are the time scales here now um, from where we are today? to either everything collapsing or your work becoming extremely successful? Mm. Yeah, so right now it's estimated that about 75% of reefs worldwide are threatened in some way, whether that is from coastal um, development or again, these types of local stressors or through global climate change. And that number is predicted by 2050 to be about 90% of coral reefs threatened. 
And during these number of coming decades, we could see species of coral that end up going functionally extinct or actually individual reefs that go functionally extinct. That means that they are not providing what we call the ecosystem services I mentioned before. So lots of fish that are able to be um, harvested through sustenance fishing or commercial fishing. Um, they're not able to provide that wave energy attenuation anymore. Um, they may not be providing protection for seagrass and mangroves. So by 2050, we could have almost all of the world's reefs not providing those ecosystem services and being functionally extinct. Um, so we are really in a, a crunch right now. We're really in a time crunch. And um, as I mentioned before, with our approaches that also many other reef practitioners use, we can grow corals here on land up to 50 times faster in the wild. And we can start to restore and replenish coral reefs around here. And by um, doing studies that look for corals that are fast growing, disease resistant, um, bleaching resistant, we can help to really accelerate reef recovery. Um, and this, this is, a, it is a long process. We're all in it for the long haul. Corals and coral reefs um, take a very long time to reach their peak. So we're also talking here about um, a decade or more of seeing really the functionality of reefs return. Yeah, it, it, nothing is, is fast. It, <laughs> it, it, it all takes a, a time. Tell me, how did you get into uh, coral work in the first place? Yeah, so I, after high school, actually took a gap year, which is quite uncommon for Americans. It's very popular right here in the UK, though. Mm. And I worked for um, a London-based coral reef uh, conservation group called Coral Key Conservation. I was in Trinidad and Tobago, and I was trained as a volunteer scuba diver for collecting biodiversity data around the island to help inform the government of the state of the reefs there and essentially their biological resources. Um, so I found it incredibly fascinating to not only learn all about reefs, but to learn about the data collection process and how that translates into a tangible outcome that can be used, for example, to help uh, government understand the state of their natural resources. So that was something that had always stuck in the back of my mind throughout the rest of my school uh, experience. And I am now a, a coral reef biologist who studies the ecology of reef restoration, as well as the application of genomics and understanding what's going on at the molecular level in corals that we can leverage to improve reef restoration. And it sound, you sound like you love it. You sound like you've found your niche. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, perfect, perfect. That's that's such a lovely thing to be able to say. Tell me, for um, I mean, there's a lot of lot of divers, new divers out there who have, have done all their courses and now wondering what to do. Marine biology is a great way to go uh, in any form. Are, are there still lots of openings for marine biologists, whether it be coral or anything else? Yes, so there, there are quite a few openings, um, you know, maybe not the typical marine biology job situation that most people would envision, you know, playing with dolphins or just exclusively diving on the reefs every day. There's a lot of supporting positions out there um, in the aquarium industry, which is actually becoming more and more prevalent as aquariums 
for example, along with zoos, are essentially creating these um, what we call gene banks or larger scale projects that are aimed at preserving the biodiversity of corals, of other marine organisms through actually housing those organisms um, at their facilities. There are a lot of aquarist jobs out there and that is an excellent way to kind of break into the marine biology industry. Um, there's other supporting positions that are entry level. So even support divers, um, people who can help with data analysis can assist with some of the um, technolo technological approaches that we use, whether through um, something like ArcGIS or um, photo mosaics, which is a great way of photographically tracking reefs over time. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's about what I know about that. <laughs> it, it does go on. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's lots of things, basically, lots yeah. of things for people that do. Yeah, fantastic. So with um, local authorities or global authorities um, who ultimately can influence laws, are you finding this much support either where you are or elsewhere to, to actually start protecting marine life and coral reefs? Or are you still hitting your head against a, a wall? Yes. So in, in locations where I've worked, it definitely seems over the last several years that more governing bodies are open to establishing rules and laws, like, for example, MPAs or marine protected areas. And those marine protected areas can have all, all sorts of different rules. So they may be no fishing. Um, they may be, you know, no anchoring. They could be no use at all. So you can just drive over them, continue on your way. Um, and the, there's more and more evidence coming out that marine protected areas are really necessary for preserving ocean environments, whether that's in reefs or whether that's elsewhere, um, and allowing for some level of regeneration to occur. There is still a long way to go, especially in some areas. Um, it can be, it can be quite difficult to get everybody in, in the community on the same page. But through Coral Vita's ecotourism program and through working with school children, um, we're really hoping to educate the next generation of marine stewards to help make these decisions at that governing body level. Yeah, it is so important. So important. It's, it's interesting here, uh, for example, in the UK, um, I forget the figures now, but we have several hundred marine protected areas. Um, but there are, only that on paper. I think mm -hmm. a very, very small percent are actually protected. You know, the rest is still fished on, et cetera, et cetera. Which is great, you know, when a politician is talking about what they've done and all the rest of it, but, but out there, nothing is changing at all. So, um, yeah, one hopes that um, your colleagues at COP will, will come back with some good results. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, no, I really hope they do. Katie, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Congratulations again on the money. Yes, um, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, brilliant. It. Um, what's what's actually next in your project? What are you working on at the moment? Um. So, what am I specifically working on? Or yeah, but, 
No, uh, you specifically. Um, so I am working on a number of projects that will allow us to determine the most ideal way for certain coral species to actually be prepared for our restoration approaches. Um, so we have a number of land-based experiments here where we're doing all sorts of photo analysis of the corals to track their growth over time, again, to maximize um, how we prepare the corals for outplanting, what we call the actual process of putting corals on the reef. Um, I'm also doing a number of projects underwater on the reefs off here to look at the survival of our outplants, our corals that we have restored, and how to um, best prepare them to succeed once they're actually out there in the ocean. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, um, sorry, I won't keep you, but um, the coral samples that you take, uh, are they hardy? I mean, what, what percentage actually make it through to be then farmed on uh, uh, and what percentage don't? Yes, yeah, so thanks to the hard work of many of our team members, we now have a brand new up and running high tech aquaculture system. So we are able to very carefully control all the different aspects of the water chemistry to make it ideal for almost all of the corals that we um, that we will bring into the farm. We do have some here now that are doing exceptionally well. Um, our survival rate, I would say, of, of corals that we're putting through these initial processes of preparing them is 90 to 95 percent. Oh, wow. That, that's amazing. That's very good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, like Katie, once again, thank you very much. And um, we'll leave it there for now. And good luck with the rest of the project. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye now. Bye.